Good morning, everybody. The reading that we are going to listen to, uh, the rest with this, with the rest of this liturgy, comes from uh, believers in Indonesia, and this being the week of prayer for Christian unity. I have to think for a second. These words that we'll recite. The same scripture, the entire body of Christ, the world over, are going to read this week. Get that feeling that you are connected to a global body of Christ beyond all of our differences, all of our geography. And these Indonesian Christians wanted us to read this scripture. As if to say, this is a scripture all of us need to hear, the world over. Luke 4, 14 and 30 to 30. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everybody. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue was fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you do in Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except a widow of Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, they, all of them in the synagogue, were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went away. What are the Christians in Indonesia trying to get us all to look at today? This week, by no coincidence, is also Martin Luther King Day. Jesus' proclamation to the poor and the captives, Jesus' insistence that now is the time of the scriptures fulfilling. I think if you look at King's life, I think he understood what Jesus was talking about. We get a glimmer of the meaning of what that passage might mean for us as modern Christians. Rewind to March 7th, 1965. A march of 500 peaceful protesters was organized in Selma, Alabama by John Lewis and the Reverend Hosea Williams. 
These were black men and women protesting for the right to be treated like full human beings. As absurd as that sounds, that's what the world was at the time. And sadly, we are seeing increasingly this is our world as well, still. In what came to be known as Bloody Sunday, people were ordered to openly, police were ordered to openly attack the 500 peaceful protesters. 20 were hospitalized, 50 were injured and treated for injuries. Images of police brutality cycled the nation, drawing widespread condemnation. Where was Martin Luther King in all of this? He was in Washington. Two days prior, he met with President Lyndon Johnson, pleading with him to put into law protection for protesters. Johnson declined. He felt that these reforms were too radical, too quick. The truth of the matter is that his heart was apathetic. However, after the attack, King capitalized on this and immediately organized a second march two days later, mustering 2,500 people. For King, justice can never wait. The time for justice is always now. The march commenced but was stopped by police at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. King stopped the march, a long row of people that went back. He turned and he prayed with all of them and looked at the police and agreed to turn around in what became known as Turnaround Tuesday. King was unshakably resolute, but he was also adamantly committed to nonviolence. Justice cannot come from bloodshed. Later that day, three white Unitarian ministers were attacked by KKK members. One, Reverend James Reeb from Boston, was beaten so severely that he succumbed to his wounds and died two days later. The shameful killing of Reeb, despite the peaceableness of the 2,500 protesters, was enough to move Lyndon Johnson into action. He personally called the widow and expressed condolences and ordered the rights of peaceful protest to be upheld passing the Voting Rights Bill on March 15th. King knew that the time to act was now. Marches commenced across Alabama from uh, March 21st to 25th, town by town, each march larger than the next, culminating in large tent celebrations that each night, preachers and worship singers gathering around singing songs of jubilation that God was now acting, that the day of the Lord's favor was now. A necessity of every marcher, I'll have you note, who wanted to sign up with King's organization had to pledge certain things. They had to pledge to read the Gospels every single day and commit to following the ways of Jesus. They had to remember nonviolence as the only path towards justice. They had to seek justice and reconciliation, not victory. To walk in the way of love because God is love and to pray daily for all humanity, that one day all humanity might be free, and lastly, to be willing to sacrifice one's own freedom so that others can be free. Each one of those people had to pledge that. No wonder they were able to change the world. The final march from Selma to Alabama was the largest and most successful, mustering 25,000 protesters, comprised of people from many faiths, many ethnicities. King recalls, marching next to a 70-year-old lady, and he turns concerned, are you tired? She turned to him and said, my feet are tired, but my soul is rested. And they marched on, they surrounded the Capitol, and the governor capitulated. Just before that, that evening, 
Martin Luther King preached this wonderful sermon, Our God is Marching On. Permit me to read an extended quotation of it for you. So I stand before you this afternoon with the conviction that segregation is on its deathbed in Alabama, and the only thing certain about it is how costly the segregationists and Wallace the governor will make the funeral. Today I want to tell the city of Selma, today I want to say to the state of Alabama, today I want to say to the people of America and all the nations of the world, we are not about to turn around. We are on the move now. Yes, we are on the move and no wave of racism can stop us. My people, my people, listen, the battle is in our hands. The battle is in our hands in Mississippi and Alabama and all over the United States so that we can go away this afternoon. Let us go away more committed than ever to this struggle and to the commitment to nonviolence. Our aim must never be to defeat or to humiliate the white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. We must come to see that the end we seek is, not, is, is a society at peace with itself, a society able to live with its conscience. That will be a day not of the white man or of the black man, but it will be a day for all men, all humanity. I know what you're asking today. How long will it take? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long, because truth pressed to the earth will rise again. How long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you reap what you sow. How long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it always bends towards justice. How long, not long, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, trampling the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpets that will never call retreat. He is lifting up the hearts of man before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, answer him, be jubilant, my feet, our God is marching on. Preachers, if you are not reading Martin Luther King to get some fire for a Sunday morning, you are missing out. But be warned, he is not the tame spiritualist you see quoted on certain internet memes. He's much more than that. And sadly, he is easily whitewashed. That is a pun intended, actually. We must read him for that reason all the more. We must read them. Noticing my own skin color, I can complain about the difficulties of my life, but statistically speaking, white privilege is real. I know that. We also read this as members of one of the most privileged countries in the world, whose privilege is created, sadly, by the exploitation of most of the rest of the world, of the products we consume and how they are made that we are willing to turn a blind eye to. Thirdly, I read this as the son of a fundamentalist Baptist minister, the grandson, sorry, of a fundamentalist Baptist minister who I know what he preached, and sadly, while well, he was a good man, a man of God, the gospel he preached was one of eternal life that ignored the injustices of this life. We must take responsibility for that. I inherited a way of reading the gospel that way, and it came to reading Martin Luther King that gave me new eyes to see what it meant, to enter into the new Bible and the Bible in a new way, and I've learned that the gospel of Christ is a liberating gospel. They are one and the same. Why? Because I think Martin Luther King knew some things. Let me go over them. First, 
King knew that as Christ was sent to preach good news, so Christ has sent the church, the apostles, to preach good news. As Christ sent, has had his spirit descend on him, it also descended on the church at Pentecost. The same spirit was deep in the bones of Martin Luther King, a prophetic spirit to announce good news in his day. King also knew something about who the poor was from that quotation that came from Isaiah. The poor are not simply those who have less money. According to the Gospel of Luke, we see who Jesus regards as the poor. Those who are marginalized, those who are denied the full dignity of our common humanity, children of God, treated as lesser worth. The sick people treated as if they were stricken and forsaken. Tax collectors, prostitutes, people deemed irredeemable and unforgivable, tainted and unclean. Gentiles, people who are regarded not good enough to be in the walls of God's temple. King also knew what it meant to let the captives free. It is spiritual and material together. So often we spiritualize salvation to be something that happens to us after we die. That we forget the kingdom of heaven wants to transform all of life in this life. Every aspect of our lives now brought under Christ's lordship, transforming and conforming all of us to the way of his love. That means in a very real way we have to help people in the way that they need help most and to show good news. King also knew that salvation wasn't simply a matter of social programs. While he fought for voting rights and workers' rights and dismantling segregation against war and poverty, he knew deep down oppression begins in the heart. Evil cannot be stopped with violence. Liberation can't merely be the matter of an administrative move. That's why his followers had to read the Gospels every day and pray and commit to that deep down. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, he would say. Only love gives us any hope of that. It is the love that involves reconciliation that brings peace. Repenting, knowing Christ's love and forgiveness and give us the strength to go on. Following Jesus with everything we've got, that's the most meaningful life we can ever live. That is an essential piece to liberation. They're one and the same. uh, King also knew something about the timing that Jesus is mentioning here. When are the scriptures going to be fulfilled? When? The answer is always now. Now in our midst, now in Jesus, now in our hearing, now in hearts that are ready to turn in obedience, now when we are ready to receive the kingdom at any moment. To know that God is on the move is to know that the kingdom of heaven is near and that that means that the powers and principalities of this world do not have final say over what tomorrow brings. Death and decay and corruption and hate do not have victory over history for the resurrection has spoken and it proclaims a cosmic protest from the empty tomb. King also knew what Jesus was talking about when he talked about blindness. Sadly, there are people with perfectly functioning eyes that just don't see. There are people who refuse the truth because deep down they love the darkness rather than the light. And finally, King knew from Jesus' life that the world often actually does not want to hear good news. 
The people at the time of Jesus wanted a Messiah to come and liberate them from their enemies and refused to acknowledge that sometimes they make God an enemy, alienating God from them. They did not expect a Messiah to come and call them, them to repentance, to call them on their hypocrisy, on their hardness of heart. It seems like much of King's world, sadly, many churches at that time did not want to hear that kind of message as well. And we have to ask ourselves, have we hardened our hearts in the exact same way today? Just after the rally at Memphis, April 4th, 1968, King and his entourage went back to the hotel. The next day, they spent strategizing with his people. However, at 6.01 p.m., King went out to the the balcony to get some fresh air, and a gunshot rang out. He fell back. His friend, Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, came to his side and held his bleeding friend. King was rushed to the hospital, but his heart gave out quickly. King was 39 when he died. You think about that. That seems too young to die by this world's standards. King would say this. He says this. A person who is not ready to die for something is not ready to live for anything either. And shortly before his death, he expressed that he knew following Jesus' way was costly but worth it. This is his words. Due to my involvement in the struggle for freedom of my people, I have known very few quiet days in the last few years. I have been imprisoned in Alabama and Georgia jails 12 times. My home has been bombed twice. A day seldom passes that my family and I are not the recipients of threats of death. I have been the victim of a near-fatal stabbing, so in a very real sense I have been battered by the storms of persecution. And I must admit at times I felt that I could no longer fear such heavy burden, and I have been tempted to retreat to a more quiet and serene life. But every time such a temptation appears, something comes within me to strengthen and sustain my determination. I have learned now that the Master's burden is light precisely when we take his yoke upon us. And so we know that while Martin Luther King is dead in body, because we have the hope of Jesus, the hope of resurrection, we know that no assassin's bullet can ever stop the kingdom of heaven, let alone any words of hate can ever silence the words of the gospel of liberating love. And so we come to today. We stand 2,000 years apart from Jesus, 50 years removed from Martin Luther King. We have to ask, what now? Where is the kingdom now? Why has our world taken, it seems, steps back? Why has the world gotten darker? We must remember the words of 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some would think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. As we wait urgently for the day of the Lord, the spikes and divots of the course of history do not show God's apathy, but rather his patience. As King says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it will bend towards justice. How long? Not long. As history takes its backward steps, we know that our God is marching on forward. He is marching in the hearts 
ready to receive his love. He is stirring in the minds, ready to receive his truth. He is feeding the poor in our cities. He is dwelling in the for, with the forgotten in our families. He is working to save women enslaved to the sex slavery. He is proclaiming peace in war-torn areas. He is ministering at the bedside of the sick and dying. He is encouraging on the streets and forgiving in the prisons. He is being found in unexpected disciples who have grown up in a world without religion and are now hungering and thirsting for something the world cannot give them. God is marching on. We just need the eyes to see it. We need the feet to follow him. And now more than ever, we have to remember Christ's words, the words of the one who died and rose again, whose spirit came upon us at Pentecost. The Lord of the Spirit is on me because he has, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That same spirit that came on Jesus, he breathed on the church. The spirit that descended on Jesus proclaiming, this is my beloved son, declares to you and I saying, you are my sons and daughters, children of God, brothers and sisters of a redeemed humanity. Now be that family in a divided world. The same spirit that came on Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, the marginalized, the forgotten, a year of the Lord's favor is right here upon us now, right now, as we gather in Jesus' name, in the presence of the Spirit, if we are bold to embrace it. The question is not whether God is marching on, it is whether or not we will follow him. It is, it is not the question about whether or not this is the year of the Lord's favor, it is whether we will receive it. So how will you follow that today? How will you receive that today? You'll notice you're given two cards coming in here. The writers of the liturgy prescribe doing this. Hand out these cards for the week of prayer of Christian unity. They wanted us to take a moment and make a time of decision. A decision with your life about how you can live out God's justice in a new way today, right now. Whatever that is, pray about it. Write it down. You have two cards. One to write down it for yourself, for later. The other to offer on this worship plate on the altar as a visible act of our worship today. And they want us to remember the words of Romans 12. I'll close with them. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve that God's, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. God, we are here. We know that as we gather in your name, you are among us in your spirit. These challenging words, these scriptures that are meant to call the whole church globally to action, we pray that that would affect us now. We pray that this would not just be another chapel, another sermon, another Wednesday, another week. We pray that this would be a moment that we accept your spirit, what your spirit has been laying on our hearts perhaps for a while, but refuse to take up because we know that your way is hard. It is costly. Remind us that nothing in this life is worth eternal life.
and nothing in this world will satisfy, satisfy us like the way of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven. Remind us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, we know you stand at the door and knock. May we open it and greet a new day you have for us. May that day be today. In Christ's name, amen.